This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world today. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Chris Gennady, head uh, of global research here at Wisdom Tree. Uh, I'm sitting in for Jeremy Schwartz, our usual host this week. Jeremy's co-host on the show, as we all know, Wharton finance professor Jeremy Spiegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note that I am a registered representative of Foreside Fund Services. One of our guests, Jeff Weininger, also will be a registered representative of Foreside Fund Services. And uh, Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategy nor tied to an offer or sale of any investment product. The views of our guests are not those of Lucent Tree or any of its affiliates. And so now that we've gotten that out of the way, Professor, it's been quite a week. I think uh, the NASDAQ is in bull market territory, and uh, we've been ripping higher after that inflation report. What, What are you seeing out there? Uh, it was a great week, Chris. Um, I mean, clearly starting out with the uh, the CPI uh, coming in um, uh, two-tenths under expectation, uh, both on the core and on the overall, uh, followed by the uh, next day by the producer president coming in seven-tenths lower on the overall, two-tenths lower. And then even today, Friday, um, import prices were um, way under um, – uh, falling actually, uh, 1.4%, um, um, uh, far more than expected, even once you exclude uh, oil. So on the inflation front, it, it was better. Maybe a, a little disappointment. Um, the preliminary University of Michigan data uh, showed a slight upward blip in the five to 10 year inflation expectations, although one year blip down. I'm not too concerned about that. Uh, Chairman Powell has cited that in the past. Um, uh, you know, people are now debating the bottom line. Okay, is it 50 or 75 at the September meeting? Um, hey, there's a month to go, more than a month to go. There's going to be another employment report. There's several more inflation reports. Um, you know that I like to look at the forward-looking inflation numbers by commodities, by uh, reports of, of what's happening in, in the uh, uh, the housing market rather than the backward-looking um, numbers that uh, that most of the government uh, uh, statistics are, are showing. So um, we have had a little bit of an uptick in some sensitive commodities. Oil you know, has come off its bottom. Nothing serious. Um, uh, Yet, I do think that long string of decline in gasoline price is probably near the end. But if it could stabilize at 390 to 4, I think that that would be a, a great relief, given that it was uh, over 5 uh, just a little more than a month ago. So um, the, a lot more data. Um, I'm, I'm expecting at this point of 50, but it, it, it really is, is going to hang in, in balance. But the, the, the good news is with inflation below expectation and no real severe deterioration in the real economy, um, hopes of a so-called soft landing are, are, are moving up. And, and uh, if there's not going to be a recession coming up, then, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> you're, you're going to see stock prices rise. So, yes, technical bull market for uh, NASDAQ, um, uh, of course, for the speculative NASDAQ, they're way uh, – uh, they may be in a technical bull market, but after being down 70%, if you're up 20%, that doesn't feel so good. Um, uh, S&P, however, the more diversified, even though tech-heavy is 50% uh, retracement, and um, really um, this week has broken through some resistance levels. We'll see if that can actually uh, um, uh, continue. Um, also, just like to mention that we've been talking here about the puzzle of um, 
how can we have uh, 3 million new jobs in 2020 and have declining uh, real GDP? Um, others are studying this issue. I've been studying this issue. One thing we should notice, uh, note is that GDP can be measured in two ways, both by the product side, which is traditional, and by the income side. And it turns out that we have not had declining GDP measured by the income side. That's what's called GNI, or gross national income. Uh, first quarter was up instead of down. Second quarter, now it takes them much longer to gather this information. So second quarter won't really be here until the end of the month, but uh, that might also be up. Now, there's a big discrepancy between the two. In fact, I think the largest in history, we don't understand exactly why, it may have to do with work at home, pandemics, recording incomes, or whatever. But uh, when all the data is through, we may not have had a decline in GDP. That doesn't mean that productivity did not really fall off at a record amount, even if you use a more optimistic data. But um, uh, it, it, uh, that's one explanation. The other is, is the COVID, um, long COVID, uh, you know, the hit in January, people were, uh, you know, not working, uh, even though they were on the payrolls and, and, and recording, uh, uh, you know, the hours. Um, we'll see if that productivity bounces back. If it does, that's good news. Third prices, um, uh, productivity, of course, is puts downward pressure on prices. So we'll have to see whether that will jump back in the third quarter. So far, not too optimistic. Third quarter, very early reads. We're halfway through it, of course, but the data is barely through it. It looks like a 1% third quarter. And we, of course, had a lot of uh, over 500,000 new jobs. Um, so uh, that's what a summary. I can understand why the market is encouraged with the, the downturn in inflation. It also lowers that probability that the Fed is going to overdo it. Um, and, and, and panic and, you know, three quarter, three quarter, three quarter, which would be, in my opinion, way too much for what the economy needs at this point. Professor Siegel, you made a reference to that productivity print. I don't know if you gave it quite the justice it deserved. That was the, the lowest print in data back to, I believe, 1950. Can you elaborate on what you saw there and the implications yeah. for the economy? Well, the, the actual lowest that we had, the data goes back to 1947, and um, we, we uh, the first quarter, we had the lowest productivity growth since that 1947, uh, uh, first quarter. Um, we didn't get quarterly data before that. Um, and But then in the second quarter, 47, it jumped way back up. Now, unfortunately, in this quarter, it continued to go down, not quite as severe as the decline in the first quarter, but we've never put two to two... Uh, two quarters back-to-back back of collapsing productivity um, the way uh, the official statistics have it. And in fact, even if you use the more optimistic GDP uh, notion of, of gross national income, it still is a record two-quarter decline. So there's a lot of explaining still to do. You know, are people not working from home? They're not recording the hours. Um, that will, of course, as data comes that in, we'll understand it. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's quite, quite a shock. Professor, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. And like always, we look forward uh, to next week. Ultimately, uh, I want to introduce uh, our guest today. You've heard uh, his voice already, Jeff Weniger, head of uh, equity strategy here at Wisdom Tree, my, my colleague uh, for numerous years at this point. Uh, and we're, we're also joined uh, by another colleague, uh, Blake Hyman. Uh, Blake and I, uh, just for reference for our audience, are, are actually in the UK. So we're experiencing uh, the European version of inflation and energy prices and heat. Uh, so if any listeners are experiencing uh, the US version of uh, heat and inflation and all those issues, uh, we, uh, we certainly sympathize. But um, I want to start the discussion today in uh, in markets over with Jeff. Uh, Jeff follows all things macro all the time. And I'm wondering what Jeff is thinking, because I've heard him talk a lot this year about value and the resurgence of value and how since he's been looking at Wisdom Tree for more than 10 years, it's been all about value. And finally, value has been performing. 
But like uh, the professor was saying, and like I alluded to, uh, NASDAQ has kind of gone into a technical bull market here. People are thinking about 50 basis points instead of 75. And ultimately, uh, you look at the last two months, the growth stocks have been doing pretty well. So, Jeff, are you thinking we're going we're gonna to swap back and go back to what we experienced the last 10 years plus? Or are you thinking it's a head fake and people really should be staying the course on value? Well, you really, <laughs> you really laid one on me there. Look, this has been a situation where if you go to June 16th, which is less than two months ago, that is where uh, we turned on a dime here, right? And the the major, major pain in indexes like the S&P 500 growth stopped. Um, and now we've been rallying for seven or eight weeks, everything, rallying everything, um, with growth specifically beating value. But one of the things that I've been writing about <clears throat> and thinking about, and I don't want to compare any two cycles to each other as if they are necessarily mirror images because each of these cycles truly does have its own dynamics. Um, the What is the rationale, right? Well, why is the stock market finding new love here in the last couple months as opposed to the action from November to June. Well, the action from November to June was anticipation of and the actuality of the Federal Reserve tightening policy, which the market hated. And it tumbled things like the NASDAQ and it tumbled things like the S&P 500 growth and unprofitable tech and so on. And since mid-June-ish, the Fed has continued to tighten policy, as we've just heard from the professor, um, and will continue at, for example, the September meeting. But it is the known quantity at this point. And what the market has gotten bulled up on is the prospect of the so-called Fed pivot, which is at any given time, the market cares about one thing in particular. And that one thing changes every six or 12 months or so. Right now, that one thing is the Fed pivot. Um, which is the notion that essentially they'll they'll take Fed funds, which is currently two and a quarter to two fifty, take it up into the call it the mid threes at one of the spring meetings, perhaps the March meeting, maybe the May meeting of 2023, and then pivot into if you look at the Fed funds futures, Chris, something like a Fed pause clear in the mid threes out to summer of 23, which is what the market wants to get bulled up about. The problem is is sooner or later, the market's going to have to hang its hat on something else other than, okay, they stopped hiking in some future meeting, six or seven meetings from now, right? It's not really enough to, to bull up the market. And I, and I wonder when that time comes, will this market get back to doing what it seems like it wants to do in this cycle, which is find some new love for value relative to growth, right? That was when it was time for this market to turn on itself in November, value started functioning as the haven. And what's really critical, and I, we could do this for five hours on this subject matter, is suddenly we have this situation where when bonds rally, stocks rally with them. And when bonds decline, stocks decline with them. And that is not good. It's not good because we've been brought up in this, in this world of a 60-40 portfolio allocation where, okay, my stocks are down. Well, at least I'll make my money in my treasuries or or vice versa. And we now have a situation in which, you know, end clients, for example, have had the first quarter and the second quarter of this year. They're receiving their quarterly statements and getting red ink down the line on both their fixed income and their equity portions of the portfolio. So I, I start to wonder whether or not from an asset allocation perspective, investors will start to gravitate towards value just just from the perspective of, hey, I don't know if the bond market's going to rally or if it's or if it's going to decline. But in the event it does decline, I want to at least save face on the equity side of my portfolio. And it seems like the market, when it's looking to save face, is is doing it with value stocks. It's certainly been a notable year for value so far. Wisdom Tree around since 2006 uh, has been predominantly a value shop all the way through. And uh been interesting to see uh, that focus coming coming to, to bear in terms of actual performance ahead of growth strategies. Now, 
I want to introduce a bit more about Blake's background. So Blake does many things, but one thing that he does is he actually is uh, in the process of getting uh, a master's in computer science and machine learning. And he's, he's a guy, when, when I want to know what companies are doing, because of course we, we see their cutting expenses, we see the earnings reports, some of them are being expectation. Uh, we, we see all of that. Um, but sometimes you, you miss uh, in the face of a difficult economic environment, lots of talk of inflation, lots of talk of uh, the big picture, you miss some of the, the quote-unquote cool stuff that is still happening, various uh, developments, various uh, new things happening. So, so Blake, as, you, as you've looked at the first, say, seven and a half months of 2022, are, are there any highlights, any things that you've seen uh, where you've, you've sort of give, given yourself pause and said, wow, uh, I can't believe they finally come out with this uh, or that? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, so over the last seven months or so, the interesting things that have been happening in the space has been more toward moving towards consolidation. Um, the, there's been a lot of M&A in the space right now. So the, the developments that typically happen, especially when the essentially these tech giants are flushed with cash, strong dollar situation, um, have pricing power over their own, their current products, you know, doing well financially, but the market may not be, you know, giving them that, that price point that they care about. So they're doing buybacks, but more, the more interesting thing that they're, that they're doing is actually doing uh, M&A. So some of the things we've seen over the last few months is, you know, Amazon buying iRobot. We've seen Oracle uh, continuing their expansion into the healthcare EMR space um, and a few other things happening in the semiconductor space as well, where there's been some consolidation that has been both horizontal types of integration as well as vertical integration in the space. So some of those things, like, for example, with Amazon and iRobot, it's it's quite interesting because with with this with iRobot, people don't typically think about um, robotics in the sense of consumer robotics. And most people probably would only be aware of iRobot might be the only potential robot you would have in your home uh, outside of maybe the uh, voice recognition types of devices that you might have, like the Amazon Alexa or uh, Google Voice, et cetera. So most, most times these types of products that are robotics, drones, you name it, are typically in areas that we say are like the 3Ds doing dull work, doing dangerous work, or doing, um, the last bit is uh, dangerous, dull, and what was the last bit of work? Um, anyways, I'm drawing a blank on the last bit of work. Dull, dangerous, and um, oh, the, some synonym for monotonous is the last one. Anyways, so with, with, with those types of work typically being the space that uh, robotics is kind of advancing in, this is a unique, uh, space for Amazon to continue their, their, I would say, you know, for lack of a better word, infiltration into your home where you're essentially have a, a bunch of amazing products that they're serving you with. And this also aligns very closely with their, uh, their robotics that they currently have in their warehouses, uh, optimizing, you know, how they approach their logistics and actual delivery systems and you know inventory management. So it really aligns well with with their strategy, and um, I think that's a it was a very big acquisition, and that's just one of the things that's been happening in the space. Thanks, Blake. So just to remind our audience, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio Sirius XM 132. I'm your host uh, today, Chris Gennady, and I'm talking with my Wisdom Tree colleagues Jeff Weniger and Blake. Hyman. Uh, Jeff, you know, it, it was interesting, uh, some of your comments earlier talking about how the market really needs to, to hang its hat on something, something other than just the Fed changing uh, or pausing uh, how it's dealing with the inflation issue. If, in fact, right. we get to that point where people aren't thinking as much about uh, how much gas prices have risen or other prices have risen. And so, we're, we're in the midst and, and maybe getting at least uh, in some indices toward the tail end of earnings season. Uh, is the picture that we're seeing now leading us in a particular direction? It might be more towards small caps over large caps. It might be 
uh, towards certain sectors over other sectors. Uh, it might be something uh, totally different. I know, you know, you, you were indicating uh, a bit of a preference toward value for certain yeah. portfolio considerations. But in, in the end, how can we relate the fundamental, the activities, the cash flows to what people should be thinking uh, about the investment portfolio today? Well, absolutely. And and Chris, one of the things that I thought was intriguing and, and wasn't really mentioned with respect to that CPI report, and I was kind of thinking to myself, why not, was, I, I mean, I guess people just look at the headline or they read the first paragraph and they never really get into these CPI reports. Um, because to the extent that there was a lot of discussion about the gasoline price falling, which uh, Professor Siegel briefly got into, and it is very heartening um, that we have now a couple dozen states in this nation south of $4 a gallon. It's on account of demand destruction, mind you, so there's the major asterisk on that. But nevertheless, if you pull up to a gas station basically across the American South or Midwest uh, and some of the mountain states as well, you will be paying the first digit being a three, as opposed to the very, very recent memory of it being north of $5 pretty much everywhere, to my recollection, in the springtime and as we entered the summer driving season. But inside that report, there were some big, big neon signs and red flags in there. Namely, that when you were looking at which indicators had experienced a price decline in that month, which was the month of July, it was airline fares down something like 7.8% month over month. Hotels, hotel lodging, minus 3 point something percent month over month. Uh, and rental cars, remember, remember how much it was in the springtime or, or, or last Thanksgiving, for example, you needed to go visit some family. Um, you needed to go fly someplace and then rent a car and it was lights out what you had to pay to rent some mid-sized sedan over at the counter there at the airport. Well, that went down 9.5% last month in one month. And there's, you want to take the glass half full, glass half empty on it. I mean, seemingly they're rebuilding their fleets a little bit and they can actually get their hands on some cars. And it doesn't cost you so much to go visit Aunt Millie now. Um, but the other thing is, is what do you say to yourself when you realize, uh-oh, People are not booking airlines, they're not booking hotels, they're not booking rental cars. Are they tapped out? And very, very critically here, Chris, is, and we say this amid a, a, a furious, furious rally that has taken the S&P from, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not looking at the tape here, 3,600-ish, seven or eight weeks ago to now 42 and change on the S&P. The peak was 48, so we're not too far, we're only 600 points below the peak. But when you look inside the bowels of some of these style boxes, the S&P 500 Consumer Discretionary Group, Consumer Discretionary is the second largest sector in growth funds behind only tech. And you're sitting here and you're wondering to yourself, are, are Q3 and Q4 earnings going to materialize for that specific sector when all evidence is starting to show that I, as far as I can tell, the consumer is absolutely tapped. So I'm, I'm concerned about that sector and to the extent that it underperforms, I, I think that's going to be a headwind for growth. You know, this is not saying anything about the tech sector alone, whether or not we're bulled up or, or bearish on that. It's just that discretionary does not look like the place to be. I think that this is a market that is still going to favor this kind of this quality value type concept that has generally been on for 2022. And I would, I would uh, implore uh, the listener to consider the, what happened inside that CPI report and take a look at some of these line items. It's a real eye opener. Yes, uh, Jeff, I was looking today. I saw a headline about how Apple uh, might be the most heavily weighted company of any kind in the S&P 500 uh, in recent history around uh, 7%. Just think of what that means. 7% 7 of an index of roughly 500 of world's largest companies and you sort of step back and you think given what you just said how, how are they going to continue to grow uh the sales of of that next uh, iteration of the iphone or ipad or 
or other thing. And that's that's just one example. I know Apple's a, a tech company, but you know, you sort of think of it, it's these are discretionary products uh, largely. Um, but some, something else I noticed, Jeff, and, and the professor didn't touch on it. We haven't touched on it yet. Um, but it, it sort of feels like, and if we just review back, it's a democratic uh, presidential administration. It's a democratic house of representatives for the moment. And I guess we have to say, you know, I guess based on where Senators uh, Cinema and Manchin are, are feeling day to day, we have to say it's a Democratic uh, Senate. So all three, the same party, you assume things are getting done. Uh, it hasn't really been until recently, though, where it sort of started to feel like uh, things really are getting done. You know, things you're getting headlines about different bills passing. Uh, J- Jeff, what are you, what are you uh, thinking about some of these uh, these recent activities on the fiscal side of the ledger rather than the monetary side. Well, yeah, and, and there's also a, you know, the, the back and forth on who are the beneficiaries of the GOP um, making a comeback or the Democrats m- managing to hold power. I mean, for example, think about um, a, a smaller subcomponent of these broad markets like defense contractors, right? For many, many years, um, you would imagine that a, a GOP surge would help the the defense contractors but now it seems like we've had a little bit of a flip where it seems like the parties are are kind of like on the other side here where um democratic party strength seemingly aids those types of concepts now within this inflation reduction act um which is basically occurring in real time some of the issues at hand you know i i referred to it as the s p 500 earnings reduction act um in that there is inside it that one percent tax on buybacks um which immediately raises the antenna of anybody like like myself or 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 you fellows because of our our position here in this business one percent tax on buybacks that's not really moving the needle but one of the things that concerns me is does it open some door right that the year 2023 rolls around 2024 deep budget deficits does it become a 2% tax, right? The public does not like buybacks as a concept, um, which I, I can't sway what the public thinks about these things. I have no moral issue with buybacks. I think it's a prudent use of your capital if you don't have a proper uh, business venture venture to engage in, right? If you have money piling up on your balance sheet, please buy back some shares. I don't want you to do some stupid uh, you know, build some stupid factory that has a negative net present value. Um, but nonetheless, taxing buybacks is a political winner, and you worry that it becomes a 2% or 3% or 4% tax down the road. The other thing that was inside it, of course, is this new 15% minimum corporate tax based on your 10K. So rather than, okay, I'm Amazon, I file taxes with you, the IRS, those numbers are are may look nothing like the 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 income statement in my 10k now it's 15 percent on what you see on the actual sec filed report there are some word around street that say you know with s p earnings you know it's depending on which year you're looking at let's say s p earnings are 230 dollars that it would take something like three dollars off those earnings that minimum tax and then there was also some some uh word around the street here that it may end up in some situation i'm not quite sure how um but that other domiciles would end up being able to take some of those u.s corporations um tax dollars themselves and that money would go to europeans um or the japanese government and so on so there's a lot of moving parts in here but we do have a new little tax regime on corporate america uh that is a partial offset on that 21 percent um corporate tax cut that we saw oh is it five years ago at this point yeah, it's amazing. It's the Inflation Reduction Act, and we're also rewriting the the corporate tax code mm-hmm. uh, simultaneously. It's uh, it's interesting how that that happens. Uh, we were just talking uh, with Jeff about some of the the recent activities in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, but uh, another big act, or uh, you know maybe a bigger act, but within a larger bill, uh, a lot of attention was paid to semiconductors, namely various incentives that you combine everything and could total something in the range of 70 or 80 billion uh, USD. And so 
Blake, uh, you know, seeing that focus, that emphasis on semiconductors, what, as, as someone who's following tech all the time, uh, what, what, what does that have you thinking? So it is interesting that the, so looking forward, we are seeing even, you have to keep in mind that these things are often delayed and this is very much a cyclical market. So by the time, you know, supply and the actual infrastructure is in place to ramp things up, uh, you know, demand and the dynamics of the market could be changing. So there is this cyclical nature where things uh, tend to be a bit delayed. So the CHIPS Act coming into play here, um, you know, really allows uh, the U.S. to start to really ramp up its domestic R&D, um, which right now it's kind of interesting that to the fact that a lot of, even though we are getting a lot of positive earnings over the last uh, few weeks for the last quarter, in the semiconductor space, uh, a lot of the guidance and uh, commentary has been around the demand pressure uh, going downward in the future, especially towards consumer uh, electronic products, uh, given the fact and uh, given the conversation we've kind of had around the greater macro environment and the uh, potential for re recession. So that has been one of the headwinds of the semiconductor market, but keeping in mind this, the fact that you know all 50 to 80 billion dollars will be uh, funneled into this space, um, and really a lot of it will benefit uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, which is the main foundry in the space, uh, as well as Intel and Samsung uh, being the really the leading a leading subset of the foundry the foundry models that are uh, in the semiconductor space. So. Um, this is all good news for the U.S., but it does tie into the fact of uh, kind of like the geopolitical uh, situation uh, with Taiwan. So we have to keep in mind that 60 percent of totals of semiconductors are manufactured in Taiwan. And a lot of the firms that we're so familiar with, like NVIDIA and AMD, uh, that produce these advanced chips um, often will design the chips and then actually have a foundry like Taiwan Semiconductor manufacture the chips. And Taiwan Semiconductor having the most advanced technology for actually creating the semiconductors down to the seven nanometer uh, size um, ends up being like, ends up really, you know, putting a lot of uh, dependency for the US on Taiwan and Taiwan Semiconductor specifically. So the fact that we're gonna be able to ramp up, product, ramp up uh, our actual manufacturing capabilities in the U.S. is uh, really a it's really a great uh, situation for the U.S., but it is, you know, probably a long time overdue because these are really the the necessary hardware that is foundational to all the technologies that we're excited about. Uh, blockchain, AI, 5G, even the metaverse, anything, any any type of technology, technological buzzword. These types of devices are key to actually making them a reality. Um, so overall, it is, a, it is a good situation, but maybe long overdue. And, and Blake, uh, I was curious in the sense that we're, we're sort of experiencing something in tech where we've, we've rallied since, say, the 16th of June. Uh, as, as we said earlier in the show, uh, NASDAQ, you know, technically 20% uh, up. So you know, we could call it a bull market, as as the professor indicated. You know, not not back to, you know, recent uh, highs or anything like that. But uh, one thing somebody could end up looking at is, like you just said, the semiconductors. There's government incentives, lots of interesting uh, developments going on. You, you really can't do much uh, without them. Uh, but then on the other side, you've got uh, software uh, and software-oriented companies. And people might look to software to maybe play a sensitivity to a macro trade, a Fed slowing down, something of that nature. So I'm, I'm wondering, as, as an expert, a specialist, somebody following tech, if you're thinking of making an allocation today, are you thinking more about the hardware side or the software side? So I have I'll, – I'll, I'll give you the backdrop here, and I don't know if um... – if Jeff will, uh, or you, or anybody else on on the team, or on the team at Wisdom Tree, would really counter this view of mine, but I'm a little bit more uh, bearish in these, in the sense of uh, our overall macro environment. Uh, I came across a chart that showed the uh, historical inflation versus Fed funds, and Fed funds really not being, if unless they're going higher than the actual inflation rate, not tamping down inflation. So. 
in that sense, I would say I'm definitely still looking at technology, but being very, uh, very strategic with it. So keeping that in mind, like you really, hardware is a good space to be um, because that does have that manufacturing type of, um, it is that manufacturing um, much more, uh, I guess, like price to book type of valuation focused um, business model, uh, which is you know, more value oriented than a pure play, 100% uh, software company that may not have, you know, any positive earnings right now, or, you know, even worse, have, you know, very small amounts of revenue and be burning through cash um, if it's in the very early stages like a startup. So at this stage, the negative earners are the key ones to avoid. And I'm sure uh, Jeff and many others, people, many, many others would agree with me on that as, uh, as you know, as rates are rising and um, that discount rate, um, you know, lowers those valuations quite a bit. Um, so it really comes down to, I, I think hardware is a good play, but uh, it comes down to valuations in the long run here. And, um, and even the tech companies that have strong business models, and I kind of alluded to this before, that do have cash from the balance sheet, have, you know, the capability to do buybacks, the capability to uh, do certain M&A transactions that they like um, and have pricing power in their actual business model um, and can pass on the inflationary pressures or the inflation to end users um, or end consumers. I think uh, I think that's really where you want to be um, for the time being, because I don't think we are um, you know, doing enough to ramp uh, to, to tampen down inflation in the near term. Um, but in the longer term, you know, there's uh, more flexibility around that. Thanks, Blake. It'll be it'll be interesting to see how uh, how it all plays out uh, as the weeks and months uh, go by. Um, but it's time for us to go international to to cross the borders. Um, one of the the topics that that Jeff I know talks about all the time uh, is currency. Uh, there's been a lot of interesting things happening with currency, uh, something Jeff and I have followed for uh, probably more than 10 years at this point is uh, yeah. the yen and see seeing what the yen is doing. That's just one example. But, but Jeff, in terms of what's been happening with the strong USD, what, what have been some of the consequences? And do you think we're going to keep getting stronger from here or do you think we're going to take a pause and maybe uh, retrace a bit? Yeah, or or a situation where what uh, another situation nobody ever entertains. What if we just stay at current levels? What are the implications for earnings in this country, earnings in that country, and so forth? I, I'll give you two examples where things are getting really, really intriguing from the the macro side of the equation. The first one is uh, let me let me give you a Canadian example and then also a Japanese one. The things that we've been noticing where we've got this housing slowdown here in the United States. How deep will it go? How much are home prices going to decline? Because we've seen we have now outright home price declines, for example, uh, across the western seaboard uh, and in the Mountain West. It hasn't really afflicted the East Coast yet uh, or the Midwest. Of course, the, the Midwest was didn't get the home price appreciation like the aforementioned uh, subgroups in U.S. housing. But up in Canada, whoa, whoa. Big declines in Vancouver, which is the third biggest city up there. And then, of course, Toronto, which is the mega city in Ontario. The Toronto Real Estate Board has home prices down something like, I, I kid you not, just go look at the report. It's 20 some odd percent in five months. So the theory goes, uh-oh, the Bank of Canada, which was trying to really flex its muscle. Remember when the Bank of England and the Fed and the Bank of Canada were all trying to, to one-up each other on how much they can hike? It was those three. I'm not sure the Bank of Canada has has the firepower left here now that we have a, a basically a complete freeze in those two very, very populous metros on two different sides of the Canadian country, Ontario and British Columbia. So that's one of the things that's going on that's, that's really intriguing if you think about dollar strength relative to Hey, our big trade partner, when we export stuff, we being the Americans, when we export stuff, that stuff goes above the border. We don't export to China. We export to Canada. We export to Mexico. Um, so that's something that's really, really notable about that pair, U.S. dollar versus Canadian dollar. And then, you know, OK, the yen, I, you got to give me an idea here. We have 134 on the yen, something like that. 
That exchange rate was 103 inside the last two years. So $1 got you 103 yen. Now $1 gets you 134, maybe 135. I'd have to take a look. Yen. And if you think about what's been going on, we've been we've been writing to anyone who will listen. We've been shouting it from the rooftops. The labor arbitrage that the Japanese now have relative to the United States. Think about this, Chris. Say it was 10 or 15 years ago. Back then, the Japanese, the typical Japanese made about the same salary as the typical American. But if you think about we've been saying for years, oh, we America, we can't get any wage growth in this country. It's only 2% this year, 3% that year. Well, you compound 2 or 3% for 15 years. Wages are up, not a lot. It stinks, but 3% compounded for 15 years adds up. Well, the Japanese haven't had any wage growth, 1%, 0%, any given year. And then tack on additionally this other effect of the yen used to be, remember, Chris, the yen used to be 77 to the dollar. Now it's at one, we call it 134. And so when you look at average salaries, we've been looking at the data, we're finding that the typical Japanese person, a median Japanese worker, is making about as much as someone when you do currency translation in Eastern Europe. And we're talking about Japan here, which used to be a place was 100 US dollars to get a taxi cab back in 89 at the peak of their bubbles, 100 bucks to go across Tokyo in a taxi back then. Now Japan is cheap on so many fronts. I think you might have a situation where you have labor arbitrage. I think you have another situation where a multinational gets into a situation where it's time to lay people off and they would lay off the Americans and not the Japanese. Why would you lay them off? They're not making any money. If you're trying to cut compensation, you would seemingly cut the cut the comp of the people who are costing you most, most which sadly for Americans, or themselves because they're getting paid in USD. I just want to uh, remind our audience, you're, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host for today, Chris Gennady, and I'm talking with my Wisdom Tree colleagues, Jeff Winnegar and Blake Hyman. Uh, so, Jeff, we, we'd be remiss to have a show about markets and not mention, uh, you know, the biggest uh, elephants in the room, namely geopolitics, uh, whether okay. we're talking about, uh, you know, Speaker Pelosi visiting Taiwan and uh, what that seems to have led to, whether we're talking about uh, various things, uh, Russia, Ukraine related, uh, whether we're talking about China in general and uh, just the, you know, basic impasse that we seem to be at U.S. versus China. I mean, it seems like if you're going to make a, a presidential run or a political run of any kind, at least nationally, uh, you have to have your anti-China story uh, yeah. good and ready. Um, what 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 do you think all of this is is ultimately leading to uh, in terms of how sh- people should be thinking of allocating? Should they be thinking? I mean, your, your Japan story I was thinking, yeah. I, got, I got to go to Japan and allocate the capital there. But yeah. then you start thinking about some of these other areas, and uh, I, I could imagine many people might be afraid, uh, might be worried. Yeah, and, and what I'll do is maybe I'll let Blake field the, the Taiwan stuff, and I'll just say this with respect to Taiwan, because he's probably got some great stuff with respect to those previous comments on Taiwan Semi, which is the big, big question uh, in, in terms of, of of chip production in this whole situation over there is remember that when um, it came time when the two parties in the United States realized that their political fortunes would be winners by being China hawks. We had, for example, Rubio, who always wants to throw his hat in the ring. Rubio was was writing a lot of that um, uh, uh, legislation. He, he was he was trying to figure out how can we have the pension funds not own Chinese equities. The If you recall when Trump made the blacklist of companies that would be um, uh, affiliated with the People's Liberation Army, how to avoid them. And of course, then you say, well, oh, okay, that's a GOP thing. But then there's Chuck Schumer, right? And then, and then as you said, there's Nancy Pelosi. So it is the GOP and the Democrats looking to 
um, play this hard line with respect to China. So I'll, I'll let Blake hit that in a moment. And with with the Russia-Ukraine situation, one of the things that's particularly problematic, and we'll have to see how this plays out because we are in uncharted waters, is we have a situation where, what, two or three weeks ago, the Spaniards said, you have to turn your thermostat to 81 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and this was announced in late July um, because of what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Right. And there had this across the EU, the 15 percent reduction in natural gas consumption that everyone signed on to in solidarity. What's going to happen here is this winter we have a very real prospect of well-to-do people in the north of Europe having to put a three or four sweaters on in their home. And we could talk about this document, that document, what this person gives a speech on, that person gives a speech. Well, what about just what is the wherewithal that the typical German has to suddenly be kind of freezing their tail off inside the house? I don't know the answer to it, but it's intriguing when it comes to trying to figure out what the direction is in terms of NATO solidarity here as this thing just grinds on and on and on. I'll pause there because I know Blake is probably just salivating to do some Taiwan. Um, so I'll stop. Yes, yeah, I'll, I'll chime in here, Jeff. So, yeah, the situation with China, Taiwan and the U.S. and Nancy Pelosi taking a visit is uh, quite interesting. Um, the many people are talking about it, maybe potentially fearful of, you know, escalating situation. I would consider that more of a tail risk. Um, and it, But it is important to acknowledge the fact that the overall competition between China and the U.S. could uh, be escalating in the sense of not necessarily as, you know, as a serious situation like uh, as serious as Ukraine, Russia, but um, the overall competition in terms of technology uh, dominating, you know, really the economies and the future growth of our economies. The like even just recent news, Chris, I'm sure you're uh, familiar with this, is that uh, Baidu just actually got approved to do robo taxis in Wuhan and that's significantly further than where we're looking at uh, within the U.S., especially when Tesla more than likely being the furthest along there. Um, the interesting thing about these robo taxis is that you can actually remove the steering wheel and it becomes the um, it becomes the it becomes level four autonomous vehicle, uh, which means there is no human intervention. And this is, uh, you know, this is really a quite the advancement where uh, we're living that now here in 2022 and Tesla's projecting that to be at earliest 2024. So that advancement is one thing. The Taiwan situation in terms of Taiwan semiconductor is the other. I mentioned uh, 60% of semiconductors being produced on Ty in Taiwan, 50% of overall uh, semiconductors produced by Taiwan semiconductor based in Taiwan. So, and that really being one of the key inputs into this, uh, the AI revolution and AI, um, you know, continuation. So things in that sense, it becomes, uh, it, it, there is a lot at stake, um, but it is, like I said, still a tail risk. And I, it is quite interesting to think about, you know, if you're thinking about hedging anything along those lines, like realistically, you just get a diversified uh, semiconductor exposure uh, outside of Taiwan semiconductors. So, um, so that's like one of the other interesting takes along this whole uh, geopolitical risk aspect and how it might affect the portfolio. Jeff, as we as we wind down, uh, the hour has really just flown by here. Mm. Um, one of the things that I found curious, having you know been physically in the UK for more than four years at this stage, is I was amazed that the ECB is starting to take a series of quite interesting actions in Europe. I, I feel like we've, we've covered a bit on the U.S., we've covered a bit on, on Asia and Taiwan, we've mentioned Russia, Ukraine, but in, in the closing minutes here, um, what, do, what are you seeing with regard to some of the unique things the ECB has been doing? Well, for one, you have this <laughs> cognitive dissonance at the ECB, um, they're doing the classic two-handed economist. On the one hand, this. On the other hand, that. On the one hand, aggressively, well, somewhat aggressively, not in the context of the Federal Reserve, but raising interest rates. 
um, or at least signaling some slower continuation of it, but net hawkish. And then the on the other hand part of it, um, essentially be, uh, going out there and buying, just to name one, uh, Italian bonds to try to keep spreads in check relative to German boons. And this is something that really, really is notable if your formative years were those years where it was all Grexit and then the the prospect of Spexit and Italexit, which was that Greece was going to leave the Eurozone, this is a, a 10 or 12 years ago, um, and that it would pull over out with it the economies that were much larger and critical, namely Spain and, and Italy, and at the time, for good measure, uh, the Portuguese and the Irish, That was th- those were the five nations together. Um, it's hard, it's hard to get excited about the euro at 102, knowing that there's a situation that may or may not be panicky with respect to, uh-oh, nobody wants to buy Italian bonds, so we must do it. Um, and at the same time, as we were talking about, when your electricity prices across the region are up eightfold, you are really, really backed into a corner. You want to, you want to tighten policy to crush inflation, but it's on account of Nord Stream 1 is operating at 20% of capacity, for example. So it's a it's a sticky situation, Chris. I mean, I'm pretty bearish on the euro here. Uh, I like the greenback for some of the reasons I was talking about with respect to the Canadian dollar, too. Um, it is essentially in force if and when until the, the Federal Reserve gives us some indication that they're going to pivot. And we'll have to see if that happens. Well, Jeff, uh, thank you, Blake. Thank you. It's been a great discussion. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, today. Like I said, I'm, I'm the guest host uh, filling in for Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, I'd like to thank Patty Hall, our producer, and Dion Simpkins, uh, who's been working with us uh, on the soundboard. Be sure to check out our Behind the Markets podcast and follow us on Twitter at, at, at BizRadio132. I'm Chris Gennady, and you've been listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.